Hello, and welcome to Teaching, Learning, and Everything Else. A series of conversations with innovative educators at colleges and universities across the country and around the world. This podcast is produced by faculty and staff in the Center for the Advancement of Teaching and Faculty Development at Xavier University of Louisiana. And now, let's talk about teaching, learning, and everything else. Hi, uh, my guest today is Joe Bandy, and he's the Associate Director for the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt University and is sociologist by training. Um, Joe, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you today about your work on equitable grading. You know, right now we're entering into final exams, right? And so everybody's got grading on their mind. And I know there's been a lot of uh, movement and talk about equity and grading. And equity in general has become uh, kind of in the forefront of higher ed right now. And so I was just wondering, since you have expertise in this area, if you could just give us a, a brief history of this topic of equitable grading how it's ebbed and flowed, and where you think it stands now. I'm eager to learn more. Well, that's a good question. Um, and I, 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 first of all, I guess I would want to make a distinction between grading and assessment. That grading is merely the thing that we do at the end of assessment to communicate a certain standard. And it's often conflated with a variety of institutional interventions to certify a student's completion of a course and a certain level of performance. I think that's actually the, the least important thing that we probably need to think about when we're thinking about equity and assessment, um, since it's certainly important, obviously, and, and is ultimately a measure of inclusion and equity itself. But I think we need to begin with a broader thinking around uh, assessment in general and how we can make the entire assessment process more equitable. Um, and so I would say a couple more things. One is that uh, sometimes we think of inclusion and equity as the same, um, mm-hmm. and those are, are separate as well. Inclusion generally refers to the concept of ensuring all members of a community or a classroom have access and acceptance and support, and that's great. It's Here, it's, I think it's closer to the notion of equality that we hope to offer our students. Everyone has the same access, apply for the same jobs, goes to the same schools, that kind of thing. Um, However, because people come from different starting points due to structural inequalities, um, unequal treatment, um, or I I should say equal treatment of students from different backgrounds will lead to unequal results, right? Um, And so the rhetorics of equality often focus on opportunity and, you know, not outcome. Uh, Equity asks us to think deeper, I think, and think a bit more about what the barriers are to our students' performances in our classes um, and to eliminate them or at least challenge them to afford everyone the most opportunity to overcome those limitations. And that means just being attentive to the experiences of the individuals as well as the groups that come into our classes and supporting them with the resources they need to succeed. Um, As for a history of all of this, uh, that's a good question. Um, I I can say that the the context in higher ed around equity is a long long one, and I'm not an historian of higher ed. Uh, But I think I can safely say that, you know, concerns around equity and um, in in higher ed generally, you know, kind of emerged in the 60s um, and well, I should say, in the in the post-war era, the 60s become kind of a, a watershed event where uh, colleges and universities are thinking about becoming more open, they're diversifying, they're desegregating, they're, however, haltingly trying to recruit uh, minorities and women as well as immigrants uh, into this 
the student bodies that we come to know. Um, and the general focus was less on equity and more on equal opportunity. Okay. Um, the 80s and 90s, we had more, more focus on recruitment and admissions, but also curricular transformations accompanied by any number of legal challenges and cultural warriors that, that want to make a big issue of this or that transformation in the curriculum. In the 2000s and 2010s, we see continuing discussion about kind of multiculturalism um, in higher ed, and that starts to shift how we teach um, and, and the curriculum that we imagine um, is a, appropriate to the American experiment with a changing changing demographics. And um, over the last few years, we've seen even more discussion of this, I think largely due to the movements around decolonizing mm-hmm. higher education and the curricula that are associated with it, supporting equity and, and higher education generally um, in the context of uh, of Black Lives Matter and other you know, racial justice efforts um, and trans movements and indigenous people's movements. We see a variety of external forces kind of asking the academy to think more deeply about what inclusion and equity might mean. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, so all of that is general context, but um, I think with that comes an ebb and flow of how we think of teaching and inclusive teaching has become increasingly I think uh, a thing over the last 20 years and that I think faculty are ever more concerned about and how do we how do we better serve the the wider diversity of students that are now in our our classrooms how do we ensure that our the content um, of our courses are inclusive and supportive of 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 all peoples um, and in it how do we assess students performance in ways that that uh, may be very different from the past. So, so Mm -hmm. anyway, forgive if I'm rambling, uh, I hope this gives you some context. Um, but the, the questions of assessment, I think are often the last discussed in this. We often think about belonging and inclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did, I did want to say that that is, it does feel, so I really appreciate that context. And also before we get into assessment and grading, kind of teasing those apart, I, um, it does kind of feel like, higher ed is just ripe right now for these kind of discussions and this, this kind of uh, trickling from the classroom to now into assessment. And um, it's not just people who have an interest in that and diversity, equity, inclusion, kind of doing this on the side, but now actually getting into, you know, everybody's classrooms and everybody's conversations. And I wonder if part of the um, flip and the pivot we had to do during COVID kind of made that a little more salient for teachers who might not have been thinking about it. I think so. I think it definitely brought um, to the fore a need for compassion and understanding of diverse um, students and the kinds of context that they encounter. Um, we had, you know, it bec- based on the technology the students had to access the classroom, various economic conditions that our students face or other disadvantages they might have um, made, yeah. made were, were revealed in a more clear yep. way. Um, yep. So yes, I think I think that definitely had uh, an effect. More generally, I think you know as we have more and more diverse student bodies, with a demographic shift, with you know efforts to to really recruit and admit a wider diversity of students, uh, we are 
going through growing pains in higher mm-hmm. ed, you know, as the, our faculty may be less diverse and administration is even less so. Mm-hmm. And we try to figure out how, who are we as an institution and how do we need to respond more effectively to this democratic experiment um, that we're constantly under, undertaking. Yeah, so, so let's, I, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about how we respond to that in terms of assessment specific. I, I, again, mm-hmm. this is uh, such a important issue, right? Because it is, it's, I like how you said, okay, at the end it's required for like, how do we, you know, show the, the objectives are our class and did you master it and moving on in the major and this kind of thing, but also assessment as we kind of go along. So let's, let's talk about how, what's happening there with equitable assessment. <laughs> well, uh, a lot. I, I, I think, you know, assessment is a, a 10 letter word for m- many people in the academy. And so far as we don't like it, I think we often, especially as faculty, we experience it as it's imposed upon us, as we have to meet all kinds of certifications. We o- therefore often approach it as a checkbox thing. Um, and we don't want to really talk about it too much. When it comes to our students, I think sometimes they experience it very similarly. Um, we put for them a whole bunch of tests and papers, and they have to check the boxes and hopefully get good grades. Um, in equitable discussions around, or, or discussions around equity and assessment, I should say, I think we're you know rethinking this in a way that parallels um, discussions about collaborative learning that have been going on now for the you know a similar period. Um, of time about how can we work with students more effectively um, to create assessment plans that uh, are accessible to a wide variety of students and needs uh, and help to um, not, you know, are, are, are absent of biases and other types of limitations of assessment that we might have traditionally imposed um, that allows students greater self-direction and self-efficacy um, that helps to uh, allow them to collaborate more fully in the assessment plan. And, and then, of course, yes, um, is absent some kind of biased evaluation and grading, right? Those, those discussions are, are elemental to, I think, what we, what we hope for in a more uh, equitable type of assessment. Um, and, and there's a lot of different practices that can be associated with it. And so it's, it's one thing to talk about values. Uh, it's another thing to talk about what are the practices of assessment that can, very, can bring this type of uh, equitable classroom culture into being. Yeah, what are the type of assessments <laughs> that can bring that into being? Well, this is <laughs> right. Some. Okay, so we could talk about a lot. First, though, I have to say... I think faculty need to engage in an examination of their own biases, their own limitations, um, with humility, openness, and a good deal of vigilance, because nobody overcomes biases completely, and nobody can do it without being more attentive to who they've been. And so that means then looking at our syllabi, looking at our assessment plans, and trying to figure out where might bias reside, right? Um, do I have a lot of diverse voices and perspectives and the types of materials I assign my students? Do they see themselves in the class material? Do they find themselves belonging in the class culture that therefore created? Am I adopting a growth mindset with my students uh, where I'm affirming their adaptability and development, um, but, but and along the way recognizing that failure is normal and part of it? And am, am I normalizing that for them so that they can, again, feel um, they they wish they can grow right through their their difficulties, um, 
you know, some, some research suggests that that in alone can be one of the major factors that turn faculty to more supportive types of teachers uh, in which students of more marginalized or underrepresented backgrounds may thrive. Mm. Um, um, are we reaching out to students who struggle in appropriate ways uh, without you know, belaboring differences? Are we you know, at least recognizing them and reaching out to help students who may come from different backgrounds and may need new ways to access the material or uh, ways to personalize the material in ways that are relevant, meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. um, I could keep going for on and on, <laughs> right? Are, are we being transparent about how we communicate the purpose of our assessments with students so that they can perform their best? Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, without having to guess, you know, play a, an elaborate game of pin the tail on the donkey to figure out what it is we really want from them. So important. The transparency. We will, I'm just going to interject here. We will, Please. uh, put under, you know, in, in this podcast, we'll put links and we'll put a link to growth mindset who people are, if people mm -hmm. are not familiar with that, we'll put a link to transparency and teaching and learning. So important, so important for yeah. this um, topic. But I, I really, I love that you started with having to reflect, having to reflect on ourselves, right? Having to look at our own biases before we can even do this work. That's something that I have really experienced personally as I've kind of done some of this reflective work and look at my my own biases. And and when you do that work, and again, I've got a long way to go, just like we all do, right? It's it's a constant journey. But when you when you engage in that work, you realize I can't really honestly undertake equity or inclusion in the classroom, unless I'm willing to do it myself, right? There's always this, I would have this discomfort and then it would come off as inauthentic or tacked on or, and it could kind of do more harm than good, I think, in some situations. Absolutely right. So for instance, when you're thinking about um, growth mindset, it can often be helpful to let students in on the failures that we as faculty have had learning the same material, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that they start to see failure and um, difficulty as normal as part mm -hmm. of learning a skill rather than as some kind of test of our innate intelligence, right? Um, that kind of work, that deep interpersonal in introspection that we hope to have, um, um, we can make transparent to our students so that they too can can engage in that process more openly and feel supported all the while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we have to feel confident in our own um, uh abilities and facilitation abilities and, you know, our own presence in the classroom to be able to do that. Um, I, I'd like to, and I'm putting on my, um, I'm, I'm, Xavier is known for its STEM departments. We've mm -hmm. got great humanities, great social sciences as well, but we're also known for our STEM departments. So I'm mm -hmm. thinking from a perspective of a STEM faculty member that I might be working with and kind of talking about um, this ability to fail in the classroom and normalize it in the classroom. And so I could hear them ask me the question back, well, how does that affect their grade? So I wonder if we could speak a little bit about how some of these, how, how some of these things look outside of like, okay, you get to redo the paper or have multiple attempts of the paper and learn to grow so you can fail this, but it doesn't hurt your grade or that's, I can, I can see that pretty easily in, in humanities, but what about in a STEM discipline where they're maybe a little more resistant to some kind of, some of these kind of things? How do you allow some of these opportunities within the context of, I have to assign a grade, especially in a, a program where it's courses build on each other, right? They're sequenced. Yeah. Well, I will say that there's nothing necessarily um, harmful about a grade being assigned, 
I know there is a movement for ungrading now where we, you know, think openly with students about more qualitative evaluations of their grades, of, of their you know, performance in a class without offering grades until the end um, and have that be a more collaborative discussion about what grades they deserve. Um, those, I think, are appropriate, although maybe in, in any discipline, but may be difficult in, say, traditional STEM classes that are, you know, have high numbers, right? So it can become difficult to have those kinds of personalized discussions with students. Um, so I know many faculty who take on that effort in the STEM fields, and it is uh, a labor of love, to be sure, um, and, and takes time. Um, so that's one issue I would, I would raise. Um, a, a broader question, I think, really is how do we imagine the STEM fields, right? Do we imagine them to be places where we merely, uh, where we're trying to weed students out, where we're trying to uh, certify students as having a certain amount of knowledge for some ultimate degree in, you name it, you know, medicine or engineering? Um, or are we really trying to support the best performances of our students, regardless of who they are and where they come from? Uh, and if we're doing the latter, then I think that means that we, we need to make extra effort to try to ensure that students again, from a diverse backgrounds, are, are reach where they are, right? And that means supporting um, their efforts in the classroom and by, by doing the types of work to uncover where their misunderstandings are and, and, and support their growth. Um, that can be done in a variety of ways, right? We have had a great deal of success here at Vanderbilt with learning assistance, uh, helping faculty have undergraduate kind of mentors who have gone through a class before and who are given some training to support them and their and tutor them in their development, right? Um, encouraging study groups, making sure students get the type of support they need day to day, learning difficult concepts. Uh, sometimes students, especially from underrepresented backgrounds or marginalized ones, want to over effort to prove to themselves that they can do it by alone when actually study groups are elemental to their mm-hmm. performance, especially in technical fields where the knowledge is not common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how the, how faculty again can promote a culture of um, support for students um, in, in the types of um, the types of, of, of collective grading that they might do um, with, We've, we've, you mentioned um, kind of regrading or retesting or cor- t- test corrections that can be mm-hmm. done um, with some feedback about how students, you know, students getting some credit for test mm-hmm. corrections. Um, that can, I think, sometimes make STEM faculty be fearful that they're being less rigorous, but actually they have an opportunity to be more so since they can talk with students about the metacognitive techniques that they use to learn yes. the material. Right. Um, yes. And taking, therefore, a more mastery learning orientation um, and, and not trying to impose some artificial grading curve across the across a course. I think ultimately this ends, though, with a, some discussion of what we imagine our disciplines to be, you know, where we where I started this comment. And that is, mm-hmm. do we imagine our, our disciplines to be competitive um, and sorting mechanisms or do we imagine them to be more compassionate uh, disciplines where we try to reach all students where they are and support them um, in what we know is possible and that is their their ability to to master our fields I, I love I love that framing of it that's it's really nice and I, I one thing 
that also has been kind of I think revealed during uh, COVID when um, people's focus in it and worry about cheating, right? Worry mm. about online cheating and academic integrity and that kind of really come to the forefront. One thing that really kind of became clear to me is we are still assessing people the way I was assessed when I was in college in the eighties, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, right. the, the tests are the same test assessments, exam, you know, what these, these ways we're doing this, assigning these grades are the same and it is a different technological world. And so I, I love that idea of really thinking about our disciplines and what do they need to know in this technological world where they're going to have access to Google, they're going to have access to information. What's, what's the real, how do, how do they need to know how to think? Right. And, and that, again, allows us for more opportunities to think about what, what are we really assessing? You know, are we assessing merely the rote um, memorization of facts and terms and dates? Um, or, or are we really asking them to think about the higher order kind of blooms learning principles, right? Are we helping them to analyze and synthesize and create, um, you know, products of various form in our exams? Our, our faculty in the STEM fields, especially, but but across the disciplines during COVID, were, uh, were grappling with this question and and did not want to lose a focus on academic integrity. Uh, they were very concerned about test banks that might be used or any number of online technologies that might be used by students to circumvent that integrity. And so, what many of them have begun to do is to reimagine what their tests were really about. Were they about these kind of, again, memorization of discrete facts, or were they about um, the analysis that was involved in, say, doing a math problem or figuring out a chemistry equation, right? Um, And, you know, using very contextually based kind of case-based testing models that would give students scenarios and problems that they would have to solve on their own. Those become, therefore, really difficult to... to, um, to cheat on, right? When, yeah. when they become uh, authentic assessments. That's right. They're they're much more authentic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, students have a chance to really dig in and and do the hard work. It does take a bit more grading um, uh, attention, since mm-hmm. um, you might want to give partial credit for students who get partial answers, right, and um, that kind of thing. But uh, this faculty who have embraced that have found that their students have learned more, um, and that they are they they find that the students are um, doing harder work. That doesn't mean that there's still no worries around academic integrity, um, mm-hmm. but it, it just means that the they're they're focused more on the an assessment that actually allows for greater rigor. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, as we're wrapping up, let me ask you one more yes. question. Okay, so we're in final exam time now. At least we are. We we got one last week of classes, and then we're mm-hmm. in final exams. So for faculty members who maybe had not thought about this and developing their syllabus this fall, had not thought, thought about it and all the formative or summative assessments we'd get along, along the way. Mm. Um, what would you say is one thing they could do during final exam time here at the end? Cause I get there's a lot of like work to do and, and kind of things to reflect on over the holidays to get ready for the spring. But what about, is there anything they could do at the end during finals? Any advice you would give them? Wow. Well, right. If so, if they have not already embraced a more inclusive assessment strategy, uh, an equitable assessment strategy, by weaving into the very 
fabric of the assessments, um, things that would help students to feel more access and autonomy. Um, it, at this point in the semester, I might suggest that they do a couple of things. One would be to use anonymous grading, right? There are anonymous grading tools that are available that might help um, them be less biased, possibly track students less according to past performance, and therefore hopefully eliminate some level of, of, of bias in the grading process. Um, I love that. And while you're collecting your thought, we, yeah. we use uh, Brightspace here on our campus. Mm -hmm. And uh, our LMS, like other LMSs, they, you can do anonymous grading through Brightspace. So yes. We, we use them too. Uh, we have Brightspace as well and, and have, have used this anonymous grading process, but I think other LMSs have similar tools, so I would encourage faculty to consider that. The other is to ensure students are, what's something I mentioned earlier, in, engaging in study groups, right? And to possibly even assign them and help students to form them with learning assistance, with tutors, with um, you know, office hour faculty support, potentially in ways that might enable students to collaborate more effectively around uh, answers to difficult problems in their courses. Um, these kinds of study groups are, again, helpful for the, the technical fields, but really all fields can benefit from the types of the collaborative learning that students make possible through them. Um, Absolutely. So that's a couple of suggestions at the end of the semester. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Oh, Joe, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with me. I really appreciate it. You've already given me several good ideas for my next semester. I'm teaching an advanced research class. So it's it, it lends itself to um, you know building toward this final pro uh, product. So um, well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. And uh, this is a brief amount of time to talk about such a big issue. So I uh, you know, welcome everyone to contact us at Vanderbilt to talk with us more about assessment at the Center for Teaching. Uh, I'd be happy to help. Thanks so much, Joe. I appreciate your time. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this installment of Teaching, Learning, and Everything Else. For more information, please visit our website at cat.zula.edu. That's C-A-T dot X-U-L-A dot E-D-U. Until next time, keep on teaching, learning, and everything else.